You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. The following interview with John Sales was recorded June 14, 2005. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. Among America's great independent filmmakers, John Sayles tells stories about regional cultures, national values, and everyday life. His films include Return of the Secaucus 7, Brother from Another Planet, Mate Wan, Eight Men Out, and Silver City. Before Sayles was an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, he was a National Book Award-nominated writer of fiction. Recently, Nation Books reissued his first short story collection, The Anarchist Convention, which includes the O. Henry Award-winning I-80 Nebraska. John Sales, welcome. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Good, good. How's how's the weather in uh, Schenectady? Is it still hot there? Uh, I'm actually in upstate New York across the river from Schenectady. It's about 85 already. Wow. It's getting up there. (laughs) So so tell me, you know, you've... uh, Nation Books has just reissued the Anarchs Convention. Did you always want to be a a writer, or was there something else in mind early in your life? You know, I I, I always liked writing. Um, I didn't know anybody who was a writer who'd ever had something published. I I kind of thought, you know, you sent it away to Battle Creek, Michigan, like you did for the box top, (laughs) you know, and and, uh, and somebody put it in in hardcovers or in a magazine or something like that. That was the end of it. I didn't know that you actually got paid for it. <laughs> I know you don't much, but you, yeah. you get paid something. And, uh, you know, I, I, but I certainly watched more movies and television than I, I read books. So, you know, the first thing in my mind was, however they do it, it'd be cool to, to you know, make a movie. And that was even further away once I learned how those were made than writing a book, so I started as a fiction writer. In I-80 Nebraska, that's uh, about some tweaked-out truckers on CB radios. Did you uh, know any people like that? In the late 60s, early 70s, I did a lot of hitchhiking across the country. So I had crossed the country a couple times just before and just after the CB radio thing hit. Just before, you'd get an awful lot of rides from people who... You know, drivers who basically needed you to help them stay awake. Yeah. You know, they'd taken whatever pills they could take. They'd drink, you know, coffee every five minutes, and they still couldn't stay awake, and you were there to just keep talking to them or listening to them or whatever. After the CB thing hit, it was much more of a, a kind thing to do for a truck driver to pick you up because they had plenty of conversation. Uh-huh. You know, they were they were talking the minute they were in the in the cab until they, you know, went to the rest stop or whatever and got some gas. So it really had changed that world. Plus, there was this phenomenon that right at about the time that the CB radio hit, the 55-mile-an-hour, we should be going 55 on the interstate uh-huh. um, rule came in because of the oil crisis or whatever. You know. And everybody knew it was kind of a scam, but you still had to do it. And so they had to, to warn each other about the cops. Because um, nobody was going 55, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some great language in that story, some some that I've completely forgotten about. In, mm-hmm. in that. Did you he, ever... He's kind of a, you know, the, the guy, Ryder P. Moses, RPM, is uh-huh. kind of a, <laughs> the flying Dutchman of the interstate. And uh, that's based on a, a character that I heard about several times who wasn't quite as supernatural as the character in the story, but he was somebody that all the truckers were complaining about because he was playing around on the CB. 
and he sounded like he was kind of coked to the gills. Early on when you were writing these stories, did you ever imagine them as, as uh, motion pictures, or did you see them strictly as, as uh, fiction? You know, um, my first novel, Pride of the Bimbos, was something that I first imagined as like a Fellini-type movie. You know, it's, it's about uh-huh. a five-man drag softball team that barnstorms throughout the South. Wow. And, uh, you know, since the main characters are a six-foot-eight black man and a, and a midget shortstop, um, I, I just felt like, you know, I don't know anybody in the movie business. I'm never going to get to make this into a movie, so, you know, could this be a story? And uh, at first it was a very long short story. It was uh, called Men, and it was about 50 pages long, and I sent it to Atlantic Magazine. And it seemed like they had lost it, and I had had some problems with my one carbon copy of it. And then it turned out that somebody just hefted it, I think, and sent it over to, you know, they also had a novel publishing part, the Atlantic Monthly Press, and just said, you know, this is too heavy. Yeah, there's too many pages to be a short story. It's a novella. I'll send it over there. Mm-hmm. And and that eventually turned into my first book. Do you write with the idea that this would never be made into a movie, so therefore I'll write it as as a story or as a novella or a book, because there's no way this is ever going to be made? Does that ever enter into the Not kind of... Not really. Generally, it's just that, you know, this seems like a story to me, the arc of the story, yeah. the characters of the story, the the time frame of the story. seems like this needs to be a short story. Um, you know, Dillinger in Hollywood, which is my most recent short story collection, which started the whole kind of relationship with Nation, reprinting my older stuff. Um, mm-hmm. There's a story in it called Casas of Los Babies, which I had written as a very long story. Couldn't get it published because it was too long. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was one where I went back to it and said, you know, this really works as a story, but it could also be a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, there's enough there that it could be a movie. We're speaking with John Sales, director John Sales, and author of The Anarchist Convention. And this is out on Nation Books. You said that uh, so is Dillinger in Hollywood. What got you together with Nation Books? Um, it actually was kind of coincidence. Anthony Arnoff, who um, was renting a corner office in our movie office, just one day said, well, I'm a literary agent. He does, you know, Howard Zinn and Arundhati Roy and, you know, pretty great yeah. collection of people. Noam Chomsky, you know. He said, you know, does John have any fiction that he would like to get published? And I had all these stories that I'd been writing over the years that had not been collected. Mm-hmm. And so um, he became my, my literary agent, which I hadn't had for 20 years or so, yeah. and uh, went snooping around. And, and uh, Nation Books, which you know, publishes under Avon, picked it up, and which was great because, you know, that I really like these stories. They're... The Dillinger and Hollywood stories are from about 20 years, actually. You know, some of them I wrote only, you know, a half a year ago, and some of them I wrote 20 years ago. And then, as part of the deal, they decided to not only do some collections of my screenplays, but bring some of the older books out. So they brought out Anarchist Convention and Los Cusanos, which is was the last novel that yes. I wrote. I've read somewhere that you're thinking about taking at least part of Dillinger in Hollywood and making it a film? There's a story uh, in Dillinger in Hollywood called uh, Keeping Time, um, and there are some flashbacks to it, to the beginnings of rock and roll, when, when, when people first plugged the guitar into the wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, I've written a, a movie called uh, Honey Dripper that we're trying to raise the money for um, that's set in 1950 in an you know, African-American roadhouse in, uh, in southern Alabama. Um, but, uh, you know, movie and money are the same word in our house, (laughs) you know, raising the money for things. um, How does that usually work for you? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's unfortunately uh, the great thing about fiction is you can at least do the thing itself. Even if you can't get it published, you can at least make the thing without anybody else's help. With movies, that's just not possible, you know. So I have a whole bunch of... uh, I call them freeze-dried movies, you know, just, just <laughs> add water, add money, <laughs> add money, and, and there'll be a movie. Well, you said that getting a movie made through the studio system is like getting a bill through Congress. Can you kind of talk yeah, about that well, a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, what, what you often see is something that's very different than the original conception, yeah. Yeah. the original idea. Um, it's been watered down, it's been diverted, other things have been tacked onto it that don't necessarily belong there. You know, there are a lot of writers um, and to, you know, it's that kind of, to get it passed, yeah. you have to really, and, and, you know, very often I'm sure the people who sponsor bills just say, oh, God, my name is going on this thing. <laughs> you know, this is not what I wanted at all. So, so, so you've said that? <laughs> well, certainly not with the movies that I've directed, but, yeah. you know, things that I've written um, have not turned out the way that they might have, you know. Yeah. And that, you, you, you know, as a screenwriter for hire, which is how I make a living, you know that going in. You're, you're really just an employee. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, I, 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 I tend to make movies not through the Hollywood system as mm-hmm. a director, is that I want to be able to, to say, well, whatever it is, it's the story that I wanted to tell when I started out. Well, you started out with uh, with Roger Corman. What changes did he bring in you, the uh, you know the short story writer or the novelist at that point in time? Well, the the, the main thing is that I I didn't go to film school, and working for Roger was was kind of the film school. Um, I wrote three movies in about a year and a half, and all three of them got made, which I didn't know at the time is almost unheard of. Yeah. You know, um, so I got to see the things that I had written. Up on a screen, I usually got a panicked call about two weeks before the movie was about to shoot from the director saying, I don't have enough money to shoot your movie. Can you help me here? You know, and so I do usually a freebie draft for them, um, you know, cutting down some things and in talking about what, what practically they could do. I learned a lot of practical things working for Roger and, and he and Francis Dole, his, his kind of uh, story editor, they were the only people you had to talk to. It wasn't a, a big committee. And, you know, together they'd made, you know, zillions of movies. And so the the comments on the screenplay were very, very specific. There must have been very good training. As you moved through your career, you became this uh, this screenwriter for hire where you came in, script doctors, as they're sometimes called. So you probably had a very good eye. I assume you had a very good eye for being able to make the adjustments in these in these films or in these yeah scripts. well you you learn a lot about you know structure when you're doing generic films because yeah. you know, generic films whatever else they are are mostly about structure and fairly classical structure yeah and you know i started writing creature features and i've continued to do that so i've over the years i've written you know werewolves and real wolves and aliens and piranha and giant cockroaches and dinosaurs and you know basically if it eats people i've written it (laughs) corman was obviously a a purveyor of those sort of films back back in his time yeah i I just did uh about a year ago i did a a yak track for a re-release of battle beyond the stars with roger what happened you know in some ways um is that uh and roger will say this himself is that you know what were considered b-movies that really didn't get reviewed, that went straight to the drive-ins or the you know, inner-city movie houses, have now become A-plus movies. So the things that Roger was making for under $2 million are now being made for 
$200 million mm-hmm. with incredible special effects and yeah, that's all kinds true. of things that Roger didn't have. But I, they're basically the same movies. Yeah, they, when you think about it in some, in ver- in some very real uh, ways, the, uh, the Star Wars saga is very much a Corman-esque project. Yeah, except, you know, you don't see the paper mache right. dropping no, off the characters. But, but the storylines, the cartoonish sort of good guy, yeah. bad guy sensibility is very much a Corman. Yeah, thing. yeah, Battle Beyond the Stars, which I wrote, um, was basically Seven Samurai in space, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, you know, has some of the same kind of gags and That's setups true. that... Uh, you know, the Star Wars saga has. In your films, Zoe, there's a lot of political and social themes. They're not uh, so much the, the monster movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, though, you're, you're foremost a, a storyteller. Do you, do you consciously try to separate the, uh, the art from the politics in your writing? You know, it's, it's unavoidable that they're, they're connected. I mean, I, I really feel like, and I see this all the time as a screenwriter for hire, I'm not... Um, Starting with politics, I'm just trying to tell a story. And when I tell a, a you know historical story or a contemporary story, they're just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas usually, what you have to do is walk all the way around the block in order to avoid them. Yeah. And very often, you know, the story notes on an early draft of a movie that I write are, oh, this is this is getting too political, or this is getting controversial, or this is getting some of the audience won't won't understand this or won't like this or whatever. And so very often, commercially, what you end up doing is taking those things out, mm-hmm. you know, making, making a more fantasy world, a more movie-movie world. Whereas when I do something, I just say, okay, what are the things that affect these human beings and my, my story? And, you know, if race is a factor, it's a factor. If age is a factor, it's a factor. If sex is a factor, it's a factor. Yeah. If class, you know, those things are things that we live with all the time. We don't make class-based films any longer, do we? Or very rarely do well, we Well, we fairly rarely do, yeah. or we, we fairly rarely admit that they're class-based films. Yeah. Even in the old days, it was fairly common to have a, the cross-class romance would be between you know, the heiress and the chauffeur, but the chauffeur was Cary Grant. Right. And he seemed like he'd gone to boarding school. You know, and right. So there, there, there wasn't that, you know, Baby, It's You, which is a film that I made, Really, the romance is finally not possible. You know, that, that mm-hmm. class divide that in high school is kind of everybody's excited about. And, you know, oh, the girl's going out with this guy who's kind of a, a juvenile delinquent. Three years later, it's just not possible anymore. At the risk of shamelessly sucking up, I have to tell you that, <laughs> mate, Juan, we, we like that. We yeah, like well, that. <laughs> good. Well, good. You're going to get a dose of it here. Um, I, I did truly, I, I thought, uh, mate, Juan, now am I saying this correctly? I've heard it pronounced differently. Mate, one, right? It's mate, one, yeah. Okay, then I was right. Uh, is it just a terrific film? Yeah. And talk about bringing together all the elements that you just described. Uh, that is a very, very good film on that level alone, but, but it's just a terrific story. How much trouble, how much. How much pain and suffering did you go through getting that to the screen? The most traumatic thing that happened was that um, the day before we were going to make, go down to West Virginia and, and you know, book the hotel and start pre-production the first time, we got a call from the people who were allegedly financing it saying, you know that you know, kind of oh formality about the bank loan that we were going to get? Well, we <laughs> didn't get it, so we're not financing it fully. <laughs> So um, what happened is I, I had lunch with the two producers, uh, Peggy Reisky and Maggie Renzi, and I said, look, we've got all this momentum. I've had these dreams, and uh, I've got this idea for a movie that's about a black extraterrestrial who crash lands in Harlem. 
All right. And uh, and they said, but if we, you know, we, we don't, you know, you haven't even written it yet, and winter's almost here. And I said, look, you start producing, I'll start writing. Yeah. And about four weeks later, we were shooting Brother from Another Planet. Okay. And that made and, enough. Uh, okay. But then we, it, made one, it was another year and a half to two years before we finally got the money together again. And, you know, people we had cast had died. You know, the the kids that we were looking at were too old. So we, we basically had to recast the whole thing. And we, we had not cast the lead. And Chris Cooper had been the person first person who came in to read for the lead part the first time we did it and we liked him but we were just kind of not sure he'd never been in a movie before and uh when we came back he was also the first person who came in he still hadn't been in a movie <laughs> we still liked him better than anybody else that we cast. just real quickly for, for our audience uh the mate one was about a coal miner strike Right, in, in 1920, 1920, in the West Virginia coal fields, yeah. And you brought in the ele- a lot of different elements. You had the, the, the uh, coal miners and a contingent of, of black workers. Yeah, well, what the, what the coal operators did at that time, they, they called it a judicious mixture. Right. And they were so afraid of this cancer of unionism taking over their, their coal fields that they very purposely would hire usually about a third local native miners uh, a third uh, immigrant miners from, you know, the Balkans or from Italy or whatever who had never mined coal in their lives. And then very often a third of them would be African-American coal miners from Alabama where there had, had been a, a thriving coal industry around Birmingham for years and that was just starting to tap out. And they figured these people will never get together and, yeah. and form a union. They don't, in some cases, even speak the same language, all the prejudice. And they, they were right to a certain extent, but finally their treatment was so bad that even though they even kept them housed in different coal camps and marched them into different holes in the ground, these guys would sneak around and finally did form a union. Terrific story. People should see this film. We're speaking with John Sales. Director John Sales, this is KUCI. We're broadcasting from Orange County, California, home of the greedy developer, which has become a theme in in, uh, your recent film, Silver City and Sunshine State. Yeah, you know, it it seems to be a theme in real life, so uh, once again, it's something I couldn't avoid. In your real life? In in real life in America. (laughs) I I wondered if there was something... uh, some place in upstate New York that you were uh, well, you know, the at. first movie that I made that dealt with it in a big way, uh, Limbo, was set in Juneau, Alaska, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just starting there. Um, but it's much slower there because everything is more expensive, and there, you know, you have to be worried that maybe the, the ice age will probably come there first, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, so so it's tougher to get people to flock there. The second one that I made, Sunshine State was in Florida, and Florida is a place that I spent an awful lot of time as a kid and, and, and pretty much know the whole state fairly well. And I had gone back to the West Coast, what sometimes is called the Redneck Riviera, thinking about uh, adapting one of my uh, short stories, actually, from um, Dillinger in Hollywood called Treasure into uh, a screenplay. It just wasn't there anymore. The West Coast of Florida that I had known only 10 years earlier had disappeared, and and this kind of, I don't know, uh, corporate development on a massive scale had had replaced the culture, so that there were no, you know, mom and pop restaurants or grocery stores to to you know or or little bathing suit stores or anything. It was pretty much one franchise after another, and that was happening to the culture too. Was that um, 
it, it was kind of corporate tourism now instead of that old kind of nice tacky, <laughs> you know, individual tourism. One of the reasons that uh, Nathan mentioned in the context of Orange County is this county for the last, well, hundred years pretty much has been the purview of uh, the developer class. It's been uh, something that we we see up close with the development of two huge tracts of land here. So we're very familiar with the way that development intersects with politics, mm. and uh, you see it, I'm sure you see it all across the country, but Orange County is really an example of where it's gone kind of amok. Yeah, well, the, the, the problem is that um, usually the way to, to, to do something on a big scale like that yeah. is to do it before anybody knows it's happening yeah. or to make sure that nobody knows it's happening until it's done, and until that's, it's a done deal. And that's been the case here. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, citizens have to be awfully vigilant and awfully suspicious of what they're being told. What I think is interesting is that even if you can halt it for a little while and have some town meetings or, you know, uh, open it up to the public and have them come in and, you know, the developers get to say their piece and the, the anti-development people get to say their piece, what I'm surprised at is nobody ever says, okay, you're making all these promises about jobs and quality of life that's going to improve. Why don't we write those down on paper and you go ahead with your development and if in 10 years that hasn't happened, you owe us this much money. Oh, it's a good, and yeah. nobody's ever done that. Yeah. You get these slow growth initiatives, which we did have here. And actually, well, we had one very creative uh, political initiative that was actually put in place, which was uh, something called a, an Open Space Preservation uh, Act, which, which said that if you're going to develop this much property, you have to set aside the exact amount for to never be developed. Right. And so uh, there's sort of a buffer zone around a lot of the uh, the housing tracks around here. It seems to be working, and so they have to permanently set it aside to never be developed. Yeah. And that's kind of the price you pay as a citizen. You, you allow them to develop that other part mm -hmm. as, to whatever extent they want, but then uh, you do have the other yeah. side. Anyway. Yeah, and then on the other side, you know, one of the, the, the basic things that Americans think of as the American dream is to own your own house. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there are more people in the world, and there are more Americans in America, and they have to live somewhere. Yeah, um, it's always a tension. You're gonna, yeah, you know, so that there's there's always going to be that pressure. Yeah. It, it can also seem like, oh, the people who are already there who have the money have gotten in, and now they want to just slam the door and not let anybody else in. Right. So you have this other, yeah. I think, very un-American, you know, thing of the gated community. The gated community, right? Right. You know, where where they have lots of space around their houses because you know they can afford to. Right. I get the feeling that, uh, from what I've read, that you think that just involvement itself is one of the biggest problems facing America today. Is that my right? In yeah. That? Well, it's yeah, it's involvement, and it's also how much a detective can any of us be. You know, a lot of what Silver City was about was, you know, the lead character was a guy who was a detective who used to be a journalist, mm -hmm. and when so much of what we get is disinformation or very shallow information, you know, how much can you expect a private citizen who has other things to do, you know, very often a job and, you know, responsibilities and this and that, to go out and find out all this stuff right. when the, the mainstream media certainly aren't giving them, you know, the straight dope on what's going on, you know, it, and, and often are doing the exact opposite. I agree with you. If you watch uh, what is become sort of the standard issue, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock news reports um, on on your big stations across the country, I don't know how anybody knows anything about any any issue anymore because yeah. it's all 
it's so much a circus. And um, they're afraid to cover local politics yes. unless there's a scandal. Right. You yeah, know, uh, and it's always so, they, so they salacious. Won't, they won't uh, say, "Okay, here's what this candidate says, and here's what this candidate says, right. and let's investigate what they said right. and see if anything of it's true." You get into that kind of—I call it the McNeil-Lehrer idea of fairness, which is if you have somebody come on and tell the truth for 15 minutes, you have to have somebody <laughs> come on and lie for 15 minutes. Yeah, right. But then you never come back the next day and say, "Well, we checked the facts on both of these people, and this guy was lying 80 percent of the, the time, and the other guy was only lying 10 percent of the and, time." And isn't that what journalism should be? Is sort of a well, filter. that's it's, it's an interesting thing because I, I talked to this to uh, Danny Houston, who was the lead in, in Silver City, was. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this idea of investigative journalism, yeah. and it always seemed like, you know, uh, redundant to me. Yeah. Isn't that what a journalist is <laughs> yeah, supposed to exactly. do, is actually ask questions and, the and then yeah. ask questions of those answers to see if they're actually true? Right. Give it context. Are, are you hopeful? Are there signs? In, in, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful on an individual level because I know a lot of people who are trying to do things and, and, you know, very much on the grassroots level. But I think that it's a, you know, it's a huge tidal wave of money that you're fighting. Yeah. Um, you know, development is like the, the, the little model for what's going on on a national level of, you know, mostly large corporations but sometimes just wealthy, wealthy individuals buying the government, you know, on both parties. That kind of campaign reform, you know, it's awfully tough for these guys to to vote against it when that's probably, you know, why they're in office. (laughs) You know, if, if somebody paid for their campaign, paid for their propaganda machine. We're running out of time, right? Uh, but what uh, what film's coming up for you? Well, the the Honey Dripper thing. If we raise the money for that, other okay. than that, you know, I may, you know, if I'm not retired from the movie business as a director, which you know can always happen, uh, I continue to to write screenplays for other people, and uh, you know, I may go back to novel writing. You know, there's a couple ideas I have. Um, it, it's actually working the opposite way. Of you know, sometimes there are things that, you know, stories I've written that I think could make screenplays. You know, I've, I've now accumulated a bunch of screenplays that I haven't been able to get made, mm-hmm. and one or more of those might make a good novel. So, Terrific. You know, I, I just actually, one of the things about being an independent filmmaker is pretty much you never know if you're going to get to make another movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, are you considering retiring, or are you just... Dis- well, no, I, I, are you I don't... Are the system you, is... You, you don't a... re- really retire. You are retired. You <laughs> can't raise money anymore uh, okay. at a certain point, yeah. and that happens to a lot of good directors, you know, usually a little older than me, but, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of people out there who there are some pretty big gaps in their career, and it wasn't because they didn't have any ideas. We've been speaking with John Sales, the author of The Anarchist's Convention, and one of America's most distinguished filmmakers, the director of Lone Star, Eight Men Out, Mate Wan, Brother from Another Planet, Limbo, Silver City, John Sales, thank you for your time. Thank you. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, Visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.